This morning, I'm going to tell you some of the worst news you've ever heard in your life. We weren't expecting it to start off like that, were you? The brand new series. The bad news is the reason that the good news exists, though. So the reason that we're going to talk about some of maybe the worst news that we've ever heard is that uh, we need the backdrop of the bad news. We need the, the, the darkness of the bad news uh, to, be, to even be able to understand why we need the good news in the first place. If, if you've ever gone shopping for a diamond before, uh, you, uh, when you go to the jeweler and they take the diamond out for you to look at it, they're going to put it on um, some black felt or some black velvet, right? Why do they do that? It's because with that black backdrop, you're able to see the intricacies of the diamond. They want you to see uh, the cuts, and they want you to see the shape, and they want you to see uh, the, the glimmer uh, that comes off of the diamond as the light hits it, and you can see it better when there's a black backdrop. Uh, the book of Romans is like no other book in the Bible. The book of Romans takes us through the gospel from start to finish. It's, gonna, it's going to walk us straight through the gospel. William Tyndale, uh, who, he, he once said that every man should know the book of Romans by heart. Um, John Calvin, uh, I think there's a, there's a quote. There's some, yeah, John Calvin said, when anyone understands this epistle, which is a word for letter, uh, he has a passage opened to him to the understanding of the whole scripture. Martin Luther said, Romans is the absolute epitome of the gospel, all right? So these are all um, kind of great men of the faith, people who uh, have been instrumental in the history and the life of the church, and every single one of them again and again talks about the importance of the book of Romans and how key understanding really the book of Romans uh, is to understanding the gospel. Um, the book of Romans was written... Um, by Paul, and it covers, Paul in the book of Romans covers all kinds of questions. So if you've got a question about Christianity, I can guarantee you that Paul covers it in this book. Uh, some of the examples are, there's some of the questions we're going to cover throughout the series. What is original sin? Why is there so much evil in the world? Why does sin deserve death? Why did Jesus have to die? How can somebody be saved? How can I overcome habitual sin? What's the importance of Jesus' resurrection? Does God choose who will be saved? Can we lose our salvation? Those are just some of the many questions that the book of Romans answers, and Paul is going to walk us through as we go throughout this series. Um, like I said, it was written by Paul, and Paul wrote the book of Romans to the Christians who were in Rome. Uh, he actually didn't even know these people personally. He had never been to Rome before. Uh, Paul... Uh, was formerly uh, went by the name Saul. Uh, and Paul, who was probably the greatest church planter ever, uh, before he became a church planter, he hunted Christians for a living. Uh, he was one of the greatest persecutors of the church, and he used to travel from town to town, and he would find Christians, drag men, women, and children out of their homes, and throw them into prison, and he would cast his lot against them as they were sentenced to death. And he lobbied for the death penalty as often as he could for Christians. So Paul uh, spent his life ruthlessly trying to extinguish the message about Jesus and anybody who believed it. 
And then one day on the road to Damascus, as Saul was walking along to go and find more Christians to throw in prison, God met him on that road and everything changed. A light shone from heaven, he fell to the ground, and he realized that the Jesus that he had been persecuting was actually the God of the universe, and he had been persecuting God himself, okay? And God called him to turn and said, I've got other plans for you, Saul. You're going to follow me now, and you're going to work for me. So that's who's writing this letter, okay? And he's writing it to the Romans, and the reason he was writing it is because he was planning on visiting them. He had tried to visit before and had been unsuccessful in getting there so far. And so he was letting them know about his plans to come and visit. Uh, And he also wanted to bring some clarity to them about what the gospel is. He wanted to lay out the gospel for them so that uh, there was understanding, mutual understanding, okay? So we, like I said earlier, we're going to go through the book of Romans as a church um, because I want you guys to have a firm understanding of the gospel so that, um, number one, uh, you uh, can know not just that you're saved, but how you're saved and why you're saved, uh, and also so that you can explain that to other people. And I want our church to have a firm foundation. Um, I want our roots to grow down deep into Christ. I want our church to be built upon the solid foundation of the gospel because, guys, there there is all kinds of crazy teaching out there, okay? Uh, especially with the, uh, the internet now and YouTube. You can go on there and you can find people teaching all kinds of things on the internet. And so... Uh, if you, if you want to be one of the best, uh, so the FBI has a, uh, a fraud division, right? And the fraud division, one of their jobs is to spot counterfeit currency. And the way that they train agents to spot counterfeit currency is they study actual currency for hours and hours and hours until they know it like the back of their hand. So they know exactly what a real dollar bill looks like. They know exactly what it looks like. So that way, if they ever come across something that's a fake, they can immediately spot it because they know the real thing so well. I want you guys to know the real thing so well that you immediately, your sensors go off when you sense something that's, that's, that's off base. Because I'll tell you what, guys, our church will be relevant and it will survive only as long as we keep our eyes on the gospel. Only as long as our foundation is built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. As soon as we lose that focus, we might as well close our doors. Really. We might as well close our doors as soon as we lose that focus. So that's why I've been excited about this series. I've been praying about it and thinking about it for a long time. And I think that if uh, you're willing that this, uh, over over the fall as we go through Romans, this could be a life-changing thing for you. Um, If you'll really um, listen and have ears to hear and Uh, Immerse yourself in the book of Romans. So this week, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the essence of the problem. Okay, We've got to talk about the problem before we can talk about the solution. So we're going to talk about the bad news, uh, but don't worry, it's not going to be all bad news. We're going to end on a good note with the good news today. But what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the essence of the problem this week, and then next week we're going to talk about the effects of the problem. Okay, so we'll talk about what the problem is this week, and we're going to be in Romans chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 18. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the tables in front of you, and if you don't own a Bible, you're free to take that home with you as well. 
Uh, Romans is in the New Testament. It's after, it's after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. So if you just flip past the book of Acts, you'll find the book of Romans. And then um, page 547 in the Blue Bibles, okay? Uh, and we'll be uh, starting in verse 18. It's also going to be on the screen behind me if you want to follow along up there as well. I'll give you guys a couple moments to, to flip there. All right, here's Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the first thing that I want to draw your attention to that Paul teaches in those verses that we just read is that the truth has been revealed. Okay, the truth has been revealed. Paul says in verse 19 and 20 that, that God has made the truth about himself plain to everybody, that he's shown it to us. Uh, and he's, he, it say, he says that it can be clearly perceived. Um, have you guys ever heard of uh, maybe a, a criminal who got charged with a, a crime and it might have been um, you know, something big that was in the news and they kind of make up a cover story, and for years and years and years, they tell this cover story and this lie to try to, uh, because they, they, you know, swear they're innocent, even though all the evidence points to the fact that they're guilty, and they'll tell this lie so many times over and over and over again that after a number of years, they actually begin to believe that the lie that they spun is true. Like, they tell it so many times that they actually start to believe it themselves. Um, there's actually a name for this. It's, it's a real thing, and psychologists call it the illusory truth theory. And it's basically the idea that you can actually tell a lie so many times to yourself over a period of time that you will you'll really begin to believe it's true. So that if you took a lie detector test, it would not detect that you're telling a lie after a while. Because you've been telling this thing for so long, your brain, for whatever reason, has started to believe it. And it, this isn't just true for criminals, it's also true uh, at, in, in the larger culture. Uh, there are cultural myths that we have been told and have been telling for years and years that we now just believe are true without really examining the evidence, but they're actually not. For example, you can only use 10% of your brain. How many have heard that before? That's not true. You can use a lot more than 10% of your brain. Or, and and uh, one, another myth is that uh, we only use 10% of our brains. It's not true. How about this one? Eating carrots improves your eyesight. Whose parents told them that when they were growing up? They were lying to you. They might not have known they were lying to you because of the illusory truth theory, but they were. Eating carrots does not have a direct impact on your eyesight. Um, vitamin C prevents the common cold. Anybody believe that one? It does not prevent the common cold. Vitamin C does not prevent the common cold. How about this one? Eat this, this made me frustrated because, you know, when I would go swimming in the summertime, after I would eat, I was always forced to wait 30 minutes before I got in the water 
Did you know that eating has no bearing on increasing the risk of cramps when you swim? It doesn't. That's a myth. Eating before swimming does not itself lead to an increase in the risk of cramps. You see, what's happened is that we've suppressed the truth for so long that we now miss the obvious. All it would take was, was just a few minutes of research and we could discover the truth about these things. But we don't do that because we've been told something for so long that we just believe it. And it's second nature to us. Scripture says the truth about God is obvious in the same way. But we've suppressed it. We've, we've been told a lie for so long that we've actually started to believe it's true. How is the truth of God obvious to us? Well, Paul says right here that um, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen in the things that have been made. So he says, just, just look around you. Just go outside and, and look up at the sky. And look around you at all the things that have been made. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Have you ever wondered why the universe and is so big and why there are so many universes? Have you ever wondered that? There's a, I'll give you some examples of, of just how amazing the universe really is. There's a star called Antares. Now, I want to give you an idea of uh, how big the star is, first of all, um, you can't see the dot, but there's actually a dot there that's our sun. Um, so you can fit 1.3 million Earths inside our sun, 1.3 million. You can fit 512 12 million suns inside Antares. Guys, that star is so big that it, it, it defies our ability to be able to comprehend. There's not a number I could give you to tell you how big it is. It, it goes beyond numbers. It is absolutely enormous. Why? Because the, the skies, the, the, the sun, the moon, and the stars are meant to declare the greatness and the glory of God. It is meant to point us to the fact that He is great and magnificent and we are small. <laughs> Or how about this? Our galaxy, the Milky Way, um, is a pretty big galaxy. Galaxy. Did you know that if you are traveling at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second, 100, okay, got that? You, you tracking with me? 186,000 miles per second is the speed of light. If we were going that fast, it would take us 125,000 years to cross the Milky Way. Moving at 186,000 miles per second. Guys, we can't even begin to fathom just how indescribably big creation is and therefore God is. And it's not just the, the, how big things are. We could also shrink it down to the microscopic level because God's in the details too. Did you know that if you were to take all of the molecules in one drop of water... One drop of water, if you took all the molecules and we were to blow each molecule up to the size of a grain of sand. So if all the molecules of water were the size of a grain of sand, we would have enough sand to make a road one foot thick and a half mile wide all the way from New York City to Los Angeles, California. So if, if you have a road a foot thick and a half mile wide from New York to L.A., 
count the numbers of the grains of sand that make that road up, and that's how many molecules are in one drop of water. Guys, this is no accident. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. the, The truth about God has been clearly perceived. Isn't it obvious to you this morning that the truth is obvious when we really stop and think about those things? There are no accidents. God is clearly revealing himself to us, and we've suppressed the truth. And if that's not enough, if creation's not enough, then God wrote you a love letter called the Bible. Not only does he tell us about himself through the things that have been made, about how, about how big he is and about how great he is and about his glory, but then he tells us about his character. I mean, he reveals all kinds of things to us in his word. He tells us how we can relate to him and how we can have a relationship with him. He tells us about his moral qualities. And, you know, <laughs> Scripture, the Bible, is literally the, the best attested work of literature in the history of antiquity. There, there is no work of literature that is more documented than the Bible. And yet there is no work of literature that is more disputed than the Bible. Why is that? Because they suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. We have over 25,000 manuscripts of the Bible. Over 25,000. Okay? And I think the second highest, if I'm not mistaken, Jamie, you might know, it's Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. After that, and there's like 800 manuscripts of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. And the... Uh, most original copy of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey we have, I think, was uh, written 400 years after the original uh, time of its writing. We've got fragments of the Bible that are dated within 30 years of the original copy. Guys, the, the, the evidence is overwhelming that this Bible has not changed. It's the same as the day it was written down. And yet, there are people who are devoting their lives to trying to, trying to tell people that we should ignore it. They suppress the truth. God has clearly revealed himself in creation. He's revealed himself in scripture. And then, if that wasn't enough, he actually left heaven and came to earth personally. Jesus left heaven and came, and he dwelt among us, John chapter 1 says. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hebrews 1.3 says that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. You want to know what God is like? Just look at Jesus. God in the flesh came down. You know, I hear people all the time, I'll talk to people all the time who will say, you know, like, it'd be a lot easier to believe if God would just, you know, prove himself to me. If God would just, you know, come and do a miracle. If God would just do this and do that. But guys, I mean, when we, when we sit back and we, and we examine these things and we, talk, and we realize all that God has done in creation and in the Word and the fact that He left heaven and He came to earth, what more do you want Him to do? I mean, He came and, and, and literally walked the earth. And then He rose from the dead. And yet, people continue to suppress the truth. Everybody wants proof that, that God is real, a miracle, and We'll say there's not enough evidence, but the burden of proof is not on God. The burden of proof is, is on us to prove that he isn't real. <laughs> because the evidence is stacked on his, in his favor, big time. The evidence is not stacked in the favor that there's no God. You see, the, the real problem isn't an evidence problem. It's a heart problem. 
We don't need more evidence that God exists. You don't need more evidence that God exists. That's not, that's not the problem. The problem is a heart problem. Jesus puts it perfectly in John chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. Here's what Jesus says. He says, The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That sounds a lot like they suppress the truth, doesn't it? They, they, they resist the light. They don't come to the light. They suppress the truth. The truth has been revealed. And John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20 kind of leads us straight into our next point. The truth has been repressed and replaced. The truth has been repressed and replaced. In verse 18 of Romans 1, Paul says that the, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, So God has clearly revealed himself, but, that but the clear truth that has been revealed has been suppressed or repressed by us. And then, not only do we repress the truth, not only do we, do we force it down, do we try to silence the truth, but then we replace the truth about God for a lie. Verse 23 says that we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. And then verse 25, the, the memory verse that we recited earlier, it says that we exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So... Sin is more than just stealing or immorality or disobedience. Yes, those things are sinful, but at its root, sin is deeper than that. At its root, sin is idolatry. It's trading the truth about God for a lie. I think Jeremiah 2.13 really, really sums it up well. God says this in Jeremiah 2.13. He says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you see how they repressed and replaced the truth there in that verse? We've forsaken the fountain of living water. We've suppressed the truth. And then we've dug out our own cisterns for ourselves. We've replaced the truth by digging out our own cisterns, cisterns that can hold no water. You know, it would be devastating to a, a man if his wife left him, wouldn't it? If his wife just left him, it'd be devastating. But how much more painful would it be? How much more devastating would it be if his wife left him for a life of prostitution? Right? That would be much much more devastating and painful. That's how God describes sin. In Jeremiah chapter 2, just before verse 13, God says this. He says, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. So God, God is saying, guys, the fact that my people would, would spurn me and turn from me and look to things that I have made to replace me, we should be appalled at that. That should be shocking to us. That's, that's an abomination, as God would say 
in Scripture. Uh, further on, verse 22, he says, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I am not unclean and I have not gone after the Baals? Look at your way in the valley and know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? That's a pretty forthcoming language, isn't it? To describe sin. That's how God describes our sin. If, if that sounds appalling to you, it's because that's the, the sense that God's trying to get across. It's treachery. It's treachery to, to look to things that God has made rather than God himself for what we need. This is why the wrath of God is being revealed. Now, modern society's response to God's wrath is that, that the, the idea of it is offensive, and, and it seems unfair uh, to modern people when you talk about the wrath of God. Uh, there was a story about uh, six weeks ago that I read in the paper, and you guys know, uh, maybe you've been to a Planet Fitness before, and they have these things called judgment-free zones, right? So you'll walk in, and I think the, um, the other small gems here, what's the one we go to, John? Fit for Less. Yeah, they have a judgment-free zone there as well, and I think the idea is that you're, you should be able to go in and not be intimidated by these big, you know, muscle guys or whatever that, that you know, grunt and drop giant weights on the floor and stuff. And so uh, it says it's a judgment-free zone. Well, there was a man in New Hampshire that got himself a membership to a Planet Fitness, and he walked in there one day, right in the middle of the day, and he just stripped buck naked all the way down with nothing, walked right on over to the yoga area, and proceeded to do naked yoga right in front of all these people in there, just, you know, kind of doing his thing. And to the shock of onlookers, and people are like, they were so shocked they didn't know what to do. And so somebody obviously called the authorities, and the police show up, and they arrest the man. And the only comment that he made, the only thing that he said is uh, in the police report was, this is supposed to be a judgment-free zone. That's what he said. You know, lots of people want to make up their own rules about life and do whatever they want and then tell God, this is a judgment-free zone. Right? We want to be able to just say, hey, we should be able to do what we want. It's a judgment-free zone, God. God's, God's wrath, guys, is not an uncontrollable rage. Okay? I think a lot of times we put this connotation to, to the wrath of God, and we think that it's like a, an alcoholic who's coming home from a night of binge drinking to, to beat his family or something like that. That's not what God's wrath is. God's wrath is his just and right opposition to sin. It's his opposition to the sin that destroys and corrupts his good creation. Okay, It's, it's his opposition to the sin that actually um, corrupts and destroys our lives, that destroys our relationships, that leads us into brokenness. God is opposed to those things. So sin makes God angry, and, any, and, and so God is opposed to sin, and, and God is also opposed to anybody who wants to live a life of sin and a life of open and defiant opposition against Him. He's opposed to that because it corrupts the good things that God has made. God's wrath or opposition towards sin is a good and right thing. 
I mean, if we had a justice system that was not opposed to uh, injustices, that'd be a scary society to live in. If people just kind of shrugged their shoulders, if the police and the courts just said, oh, having your house robbed is no big deal. You should have you been stronger than the guy that broke into your house. Too bad. That's just how things go, right? That would not be a very good society to live in. We have moral outrage, too. Think about it. Think about how you respond whenever you hear a story about, you know, a child being abused or an innocent person having their life taken or something like that. There's this, there's this indignation that rises up in our hearts. There's this moral outrage. We, we want something to be done about this, right? We want this person to, to pay for what they've done. It's not right that, that somebody that's innocent would be taken advantage of, right? Have you, anybody felt that way before? Have you seen that? Yeah, that's, that's a good thing to feel. In fact, if you don't feel that way at injustice, something's wrong. Like your heart is cold, right? Your heart is cold. So it's a good thing to, to have this opposition to injustice. And, and should not God feel the same way towards sin? Now, somebody may respond at this point, well, yes, Jared, I agree that God should respond that way to, you know, like a, you know, a, a child abuser or to a murderer or something like that. But not all sin is the same. I don't think that it's right for God to be wrathful towards people with lesser sins, right? Some sins aren't as bad as others. Well, two things I'll say to that. First of all, you are assuming moral authority to categorize sin, and then you are uh, putting that authority on God by doing that. So you're basically, um, you know, saying, I've got the right to be able to determine which sins deserve which punishments, and I'm going to hold God to that standard, number one, okay? And so we can't really do that. We can't tell God what's just and what's unjust. God tells us what's just and what's unjust. And secondly, maybe this illustration will kind of help you. It's true that in a sense there are some sins that are worse than others in the sense that some sins have greater and more immediate consequences than others, right? So like if if you know, you go and um, assault somebody, well, that's going to have some immediate consequences, right, for both parties. Number one, the person that you just hurt, and number two, for you, because you're probably going to get caught and go to jail, uh, as opposed to if you lie. Now, lying can start a chain reaction of negative events that, you know, can be very bad, but it's not necessarily going to be the same thing as if you went and physically assaulted somebody, right? But all sin still leaves us far short of God's glory. Think about it this way. Say that Buffalo, New York is where the righteousness of God is. And you and I are here in Oshawa, Ontario. And Lake Ontario is the sin that separates us from righteousness. Okay? It's the chasm that separates us from God and from righteousness. And I tell you, if you want to be righteous, if you want to get to God, you need to jump over Lake Ontario to Buffalo. Now, I might be able to jump a little bit farther than you, or maybe you'd be able to jump a little bit farther than me, and I bet you we could go find an Olympic athlete that could jump a good deal farther than both of us, but the reality is, guys, is that every single one of us would fall pitifully short of Buffalo, New York, right? It wouldn't even be close. Even the Olympic athlete would be embarrassingly short. Okay, so big deal. You jumped two feet farther towards Buffalo, New York. You've still fallen far short of righteousness. God is holy. And that is why we can't just compare sin 
with other sin. We can't compare our sin with the sins of other people. All sin ultimately leads to us falling short of God's righteousness. Does that make sense? See, not only, so we've repressed the truth, and then we replace it. And what do we replace the truth with? Well, the squiggly lines on the three circles illustration, right? Just whatever, put, put anything in there. You can replace the truth about God with anything. If God created it, you can make it an idol. It could be a relationship. It could be a goal in your life. It could be money. It could be your career. It could be anything. We could replace, we could replace God with anything. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, um, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. What are you tempted to replace God with? What are you looking to that you should be looking to God for instead? And we've repressed and we've replaced the truth for so long that we're blind. It's the illusory truth theory. We don't even realize it a lot of the times. And in uh, verse 24, back in our passage in Romans, Romans 1, 23 and 24, um, Paul says, we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. And then in verse 24, he says, there's a consequence. He says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now, we're going to go into more detail on this next week. But what Paul is essentially saying is that, that part of what it means when it says that the wrath of God is being revealed against us, God has let you have what you want outside of Christ, okay? God has let us have what we want. By repressing the truth, God said, okay, if you want to embrace a lie, I'm going to let you embrace a lie. If you want to cover your eyes, then I will leave you with permanent blindness. And so we're stuck that way, and we can't cause ourselves to be able to see anymore. We need somebody to open our eyes. We need the truth restored, how does that happen? Well, we need a miracle, and the good news is that that's why this Bible was written. <laughs> that's why Jesus came. That's why the entire book of Romans is there, is that although we've repressed and we've replaced the truth and we are a slave to sin and we're blind to it, the gospel can open our eyes to the truth. The gospel can show us our sin and can show us that Jesus is our Savior and the only way to salvation Paul puts it like this in Romans 1, 16 and 17. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So, no, you and I don't have the capability to be able to jump, jump across Lake Ontario to Buffalo, New York. We can't make it. We cannot be righteous. But the good news, did you see the good news in verse 17 of Romans 1 right there? It says the righteousness of God is revealed, revealed from faith for faith. That means by faith from start to finish. That means if you want to be righteous, you don't have to earn it. You don't have to try. All you have to do is trust. The truth can be restored by placing your trust, by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. 
1 Peter 1, 23 and 25 says, You have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the gospel that was preached to you. The gospel has the power to open your eyes. And this word is that God loves us so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, for one reason. And that was to take the punishment that you and I deserved for our sin on the cross. And then Jesus rose from the dead three days later. 2 Corinthians 5.21 talks about there's an exchange. It says that, uh, um, that he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. You know, it's pretty neat, isn't it, that you know, we made an exchange ourselves, didn't we? We talked about it earlier. We exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We repressed the truth and we replaced the truth. That's the exchange we made. And then God, in his response, you'd expect him to just go, all right, you, want, you, you don't want me? Really? You think that you can find something better? You're going to worship the things that I've made instead of me? Fine. Have it that way then. Get out of my face. But God doesn't respond like that, does he? No. Instead, he makes an exchange of his own. He exchanges the righteousness of Jesus for our sin. Jesus takes our sin on himself and gives us his righteousness as a gift. That's the exchange that God made. That's called grace. That's called grace. Jesus is the Savior, and he's proven this by being risen from the dead. And salvation is a free gift by faith in his name. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, and your heart is burning within you. And you know that Things haven't been right between you and God. And you know that you need to make things right between you and God. Well, the good news is that even though all of us in here, every single one of us in this room have repressed and replaced the truth, you can come to him this morning because he loves you. Christ died to save sinners. And that is the good news that we're here to proclaim this morning. So I'd invite you to come to him and receive that forgiveness. If you're a Christian this morning, couple of things, a couple of application points. Are you talking about sin when you share the gospel? Are you talking about sin when you share the gospel with other people? Imagine if you had a doctor who didn't share a bad diagnosis with you because he was afraid you might get upset by what he had to tell you. That's a pretty terrible doctor, right? You want a doctor to tell you if something's wrong. Like, don't, you know, don't just, you know, try to not hurt my feelings. If I have a sickness, I need to know about it. Right? So why in the world would we do that to people? Why would we not tell people the whole reason that the gospel exists in the first place? Now, we do that with compassion. We talk to people about sin compassionately. You don't go and yell at people and point your finger in their face and tell them how dirty of a sinner they are and they better repent and stuff like that. That's not what we do. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what we're called to do. But we're also not called to just completely ignore sin like it doesn't exist because it does. It's real. It's a, real, it's a real affliction. It's a real thing that separates us from God. And it's the, it's the reason that Jesus came. So we can talk to people about sin truthfully and compassionately. Are you doing that when you share the gospel? If you're not, it's going to be difficult for people to even understand why they need Jesus in the first place. I think we've bought into the lie that suppressing the truth is compassionate. And it's not. It's not compassionate. 
uh, one thing you can do is memorize Romans chapter 125, the verse we talked about at the beginning of the passage, the bookmark. Memorize it and then include it when you share the gospel with people, right? Just start putting that verse in there. Secondly, I want you to recall that, that verse 21 in Romans 1 says that uh, sin does not honor God or give thanks to Him, okay? Sin does not honor God or give thanks to Him. So my question for you, if you're a Christian, would be, are you treating God like He's God? Or are you suppressing God's truth in any area of your life? Are you suppressing His voice in any area of your life? The difference between uh, Christians and non-Christians is that Christians see their idolatry, if that makes sense. They're, they're aware of it, and they know it. Non-Christians don't see it yet, because they, their eyes haven't been opened uh, to the truth about Jesus. Uh, they're still spiritually blind. We need the Spirit of God to be able to open our eyes. Um, and if you're here this morning, and you're like, are you saying I'm blind? Well, if you're not a Christian, yes, I am saying you're blind. But I'm also saying you can see this morning if you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Like, you can see. All you have to do is ask. All you have to do is say, Jesus, come into my life and save me, and he'll open your eyes. But if you're a believer, then you know good and well whether or not you're suppressing the truth in one area of your life or the other. My encouragement to you is don't keep doing that. Don't keep suppressing the truth because what can start to happen is you can start to lose your vision in a way. And you can, your brightness can start to become dimmed. We've got we've to surrender every single day, every single morning before your heat, feet hit the bed. You've got to surrender every area of your life to Jesus. Are you going to trust him in every single area? Are you going to trust him with your finances? Are you going to trust him with your family? Are you going to trust him with your kids? Are you going to trust him with your job? Are you going to trust him with your relationships, with your future marriage? Or is there an area of your life where you're like, Jesus, I'll trust you with everything, but don't touch this part of my life. This is off limits. I need to maintain control of it. Don't do that. That's suppressing the truth about God. You know what God's word says about that area of your life, so apply it. God is good. You don't have to, there's no reason for you not to trust God. He's already proven that you can trust him. He's already shown you how much he loves you by dying for you on the cross. He's already proven that there's no difficulty in your life that's too great for him because he rose from the dead. So you have no reason not to trust God in every single area of your life. The truth has been revealed the truth was repressed, the truth was replaced, but now we have the opportunity for the truth to be restored in our lives. And that's what Romans 1, 18 to 23 teaches us. Now, we're going to respond, what time is it? 12.15. We're going to respond uh, this morning by uh, having a short time of discussion questions up on the screen behind me, and then we're going to dismiss after that. So we'll take about five or six minutes. Just get with your tables real quick, and there's a few questions on the screen. And let's just discuss these questions and talk about how we can apply uh, what we've learned. We do this because I don't ever want you guys to think that you're here to watch a show or that you're here to watch the professionals do, thing, do things. We're a body, and all of us are called uh, and have gifts, uh, spiritual gifts, uh, to bring to the body of Christ. And so we want this to be a, a family thing uh, where you have an opportunity to speak uh, into this and ask questions. So uh, let's take some time to do that, and then we'll close with our closing song, okay?